Good morning. So last week, Phil uh, was speaking out of the book of Acts and uh, about the church in Ephesus, and he mentioned that at the end of the story, Paul left, went away, had to leave the, uh, leave the church to find their way on their own. No sermon is complete without an application, so here we are. <laughs> Phil stayed home, we're here. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you promised that your word is powerful and active and that it would not go out void. And I just pray that that would be true for each of us this morning. Amen. You ever find yourself sitting in church listening to the message and all of a sudden your mind just off somewhere else? Now, I don't mean the Caribbean on a beach. That's, that's your problem. You know, zone back in. I mean, you're listening, taking notes, doing the right thing, and you hit like a mental tripping hazard in the text or the preacher says something, and you're just like, oh. And then you just get stuck. And you try to re-engage, but there's just that thing. You just can't get past and it's like halfway there. And so you're listening, but you're distracted. I get that way sometimes. Last week. So, uh, my message this week is a combination of wrestling with last week's question and a message that I did at the winter retreat this year. I don't necessarily have all the answers uh, that I'd like to have. But I think maybe some valuable things, some valuable insights. So the title of this message is, yeah, uh, well, that's actually the first hurdle. Uh, see, if you make a title for a message, it gives you a direction to travel in. It gives you an endpoint, And that's great. Except sometimes along the way you find that that's not where you end up, and then you have to make a new one. And so the title's kind of important, but it can be confusing. So for this one, I actually have three, and I haven't chosen one, and maybe we'll come up with more. I don't know. The first one is really kind of what could have been last week's message, becoming Ephesus. Imagine that out on our sign out front in the red LEDs, becoming Ephesus. That's kind of cool. That also sounds a little arrogant, like they've arrived. But Ephesus really did have some things going for them. Think about Ephesus. How many churches get to say, yeah, the Apostle Paul was our pastor, and then Timothy? Yeah, that's impressive. Priscilla and Aquila went there. How many churches have a book of the Bible written to them? A handful. Of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, which are not our standard to judge by, but how many of them have a book of the Bible? 
Ephesus. Thyatira, we know the name of one lady who went there. The rest of them, all we have is the name of the church. Ephesus, we have their whole history. Not their whole history, but we have a lot. Ephesus is mentioned 18 times in the New Testament. And although in Revelation, Jesus corrects them for falling away from their first love, they fell from somewhere. If they fell to here, they were here. Becoming Ephesus is not necessarily a bad thing. Then I thought, maybe similar. Becoming Apollos. Yeah, that's good. Equally arrogant. But seriously, Apollos was an all-star in the first century church. He's mentioned ten times in the New Testament, rubs shoulders with the icons. He's listed amongst the first century celebrity preachers. Remember in Corinthians, you had one person, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. And then there's that guy with the wrist, the uh, silicone wristband comes in thinking he's going to end the argument but just pours more, more fuel on the fire. I follow Jesus. Apollos was a big deal. And so becoming Apollos, that's a good thing to study. And Apollos was a great guy. Then I thought, okay, the third one, the complete disciple. That's a good one. And this one's maybe the closest to what I was thinking. But it misses. So let's set aside that stuff for a minute. And let's go back and look at the passage from last week. Acts 18.24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. So hold on there. Apollos has a great resume. How would you like it if that was the job description? that you were applying for. Proficient in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, accurately speaking and teaching. Oh, that's rough. But he knew only about the baptism of John. So what exactly was his message? As we carry on, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of the Lord more accurately to him. Can you imagine Priscilla and Aquila after the service? Did you just hear what I heard? Did you just not hear what I didn't hear? I got to tell him. Yeah, we have to tell him. Okay, you tell him. No, I'm not going to tell him. You tell him. Why do we tell him? I don't know. Well, be positive. Start with something positive. (laughs) That's how it would go, right? What if he reacts badly? And so they did the right thing. 
Priscilla and Aquila had heard, when, they heard, when Priscilla and Aquila had heard him, they took him aside. So they did it privately. They took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. So Priscilla and Aquila had traveled extensively, extensively with Paul and discerned that there was something missing from what Apollos was teaching and stepped in to correct him. Now, Apollos was teaching accurately about Jesus, but his message was incomplete. And how did Apollos react? He was teachable. He was humble. In keeping with his character, And from the text, his reaction, the next verse, is he wanted to go share it with others. He was excited to get this new information, to get this correction. And when he wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. So they gave him a letter of recommendation. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. So he went over to Achaia, which is the region, modern-day Greece, which included Corinth and Athens, a huge area. And then verse 28, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And I thought it's interesting that he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. The end of verse 27. So Apollos, with new knowledge, went to that region to help other believers. So we go on to the next section in verse 19, or chapter 19. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, on the contrary, we've not even heard there if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after them, that is Jesus. I don't know if these disciples were people who had followed Apollos. Ephesus was a big town. Uh, The smallest estimates that I found were 50,000 people. So very likely they knew Apollos, very likely that they didn't. We, We don't have that information. But think about it. Paul finds some disciples. Disciples. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Really? I want to get in the DeLorean. (laughs) I want to take the New City Catechism back there. Question three, how many persons are in God? There are three persons in the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. These disciples were engaged, but they were very 
incomplete. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So their faith was genuine but incomplete. This is where I got distracted last week. If you can be that incomplete, what does it mean to be a disciple? And so I continue to listen, but that question kept going on. And it was a familiar question. In fact, I talked to Phil about it Thursday. Because it's a question that I have considered in the last year or so. I couldn't remember why, which is disturbing. Uh, But I knew I'd considered that question. It turns out it was a topic at our recent youth retreat. And it turns out I was the speaker. (laughs) So... uh, So over the last couple of days, as I've been preparing for this, that question of what is a disciple has been revisited. And I came to realize the complete disciple is a terrible name for a message. And I probably owe an apology to the two gentlemen who wrote the book, The Complete Disciple. And then the other book, The Complete Disciple. But it's a terrible name for a book. The Complete Disciple is an oxymoron. Complete and disciple are contradictory terms. Being a disciple is not a position. It's a direction. It's active. None of us is complete. None of us is whole. We're all growing. There's no such thing as a complete disciple. We should be like Apollos. We should be like the Ephesians, who are examples to us of incomplete disciples. Their incompleteness makes them great role models for us. So being a disciple is both a function of the mind and a function of the will. So if you missed it, that was the transition. Now we go to John 8, 31, and we find where Jesus deals with the same issue. He's at the temple talking to a crowd of people who had been following him, and we find that he's having to clarify what it means to believe in him and what it is to be a disciple. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. Let's all say that. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. One more time. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then the next verse. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
So that's a place where maybe some people could get lost and wander off. There's a lot in those two verses. I don't know if anybody thought of any questions. When I did this with the kids, I figured they wouldn't come up with any, so I made a list. And this is how you get lost in a sermon. Jesus who? Jews, what Jews? What's a Jew? Which Jews? The ones that have believed in him? If these are the ones who believed in him, then some did not believe. And for those who had not believed, their belie- who had believed, their belief was a new thing. What does it mean to believe in him? What did they believe? What did the others believe? If you abide, what is abide? If you abide in my word, what word? How would you abide in his word if he wanted to? You are truly my disciples. Truly. Can you be falsely his disciple? What's a disciple? You will know the truth. What does it mean to know? Does that mean they didn't know yet? What truth? Is there some secret here? And the truth will set you free. Were they not free already? If they were not free, how and why? How does this apply to you and me? Have I believed? Have you believed? What have I believed? What have you believed? Can I abide in his word? Can you abide in his word? If we could, would we want to? What would that look like? If I was to abide in his word, would I truly be his disciple? Would you? Can I be an untrue disciple? Can you? If I knew the truth, would it set me free? If you knew the truth, would it set you free? Am I not free? Are you not free? Free from what? Free from who? There's a lot in a couple of verses. There's a lot of potential to get distracted. So we're going to look at some of these things. The Jews were God's chosen people throughout the centuries. They were given the law, the promises, the prophecies, and yet they repeatedly and cyclically turned from God individually and nationally, yet they awaited for their promised Messiah, their promised Savior, to redeem them to God, to restore the promises to Israel. However, they mistakenly believed that their Messiah would restore the kingdom politically, nationally, by defeating their enemies. They weren't looking for a spiritual Savior, so when one came, few recognized him. But some Jesus did recognize him as the Messiah. He had fulfilled many of the prophecies, despite not being what they expected. And much of what we know about Jesus was him traveling through the Holy Land, proving that he had met the requirements to be the Messiah. A long time ago, I would guess 1984, I was in a church Sunday school class. My friend Daryl was the teacher. He had recently heard a sermon on the radio by John MacArthur. Daryl passed this on to me. And for some reason, I've never forgotten. Maybe it'll stick with you as well. Uh, And John MacArthur probably got it from a Dallas Seminary professor named Dwight Pentecost. So it wasn't original to me, not original to Daryl, not original to John, maybe not original to Dwight. Nobody knows. Well, it was a careful analysis of the crowds that followed Jesus, categorizing them into where they were at the time. Properly alliterated, the curious, the convinced, and the committed. And I wonder if we're much different today. 
Would each of us fall into one of those three categories? Which of us is curious? Which of us is convinced? Which, is, which of us is committed? Now, to be fair, I don't think these three categories necessarily are static and fit everyone, and you can just throw someone in this category and everybody in that category is the same. I think it's a spectrum, uh, hopefully a spectrum of growth where people become curious and then become convinced and then become committed, although some people never make it that far. But it is a helpful way to describe the spiritual condition of the crowds that we see and our own condition. So at the beginning of chapter 8, we see Jesus returning to the temple to teach those who had gathered. So, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. These were the curious. They'd moved beyond basic indifference because they showed up. That's the first step, right? Showing up. We don't know why they showed up, what their motive is. And I think often we have mixed motives for showing up. Some of it may be social. Some of it may be to be with friends. Some of it may be a little more manipulative for some people. It's like, you live under my house. You live under my roof. You're going to my church. Some of it's to please someone else. A lot of motives for showing up. And Jesus found himself dealing with the motives of the crowd that followed him in John 6, 24. So the, crowd that, so the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Free food in the days before the drive through that was their motive. And Jesus called them out on it. They may have not even been curious, but certainly they were less than convinced, like many of the religious rulers. And before too long, the scribes and Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus with their clever tricks. And eventually, Jesus got to this statement in verse 824. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Even before that, some of his own disciples had turned away. He had come up and had some difficult teachings. And in chapter 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And that's just before the verse that we're familiar with, with Peter in one of his lucid moments. Uh, Jesus looked at his disciples, are you leaving too? And Peter said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Um, so in verse 31, chapter 8, we read, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. That's our verse. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So I think these are people who have moved beyond curiosity, and they at least believed that Jesus was their Messiah. That doesn't mean they understood what the Messiah was, 
They were expecting the Lion of Revelation, not the Lamb of Bethlehem. But they at least believed something. They were convinced to follow, but they were not fully informed. They needed to know more. But it was more than information that they needed. They needed to live it. They were convinced, but not committed. To those he called to abide in his word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. The word abide is often used to describe where people live. It comes from the same root word as abode, a synonym for your home. Do we live in God's word? Is it that central to our lives that we live in it? That's what Jesus said we're supposed to do. If you abide in my word. A disciple's a follower, but Jesus indicated that you can be a follower, but not a true follower. So what does it mean to be truly his disciple? If you're not living in his word, you might never know. Commitment comes with a promise that's not included for the curious or the convinced. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But what does it mean to know the truth? It seems like the truth would be the important word here. Maybe, maybe not. The truth obviously refers to the things that the Jews had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but they probably didn't understand that he would, would be a suffering Messiah who would die for our sins. We have a great benefit of hindsight that we understand way better than they do. But do we really know the truth? The word know here is actually not an intellectual word. It's not knowing a fact. It's a relational word. It's like you would know a friend or know a loved one. Like a friend you'd be comfortable with anywhere. So have you made friends with the truth? Do you relate to it that way? As we talk about being incomplete disciples, I think there's a connection there. That we have to know that truth about ourselves, but know it relationally, not just as information. Have you made peace with your identity as a sinner who needs a Savior? Are you convinced of that? It's only then that you can live with that truth and have the truth set you free and walk away from the enslavement to sin and be free. So what does commitment look like? You probably already know. It's a shift of priorities. It's pursuing God above ourselves. And it's not a changed life to get a changed heart, but a changed life because of a changed heart. As we examine the scriptures, the ESV lists 260 references to the word disciple. Now, most of those are the disciples did this, the disciples went there. They don't really tell us anything about the disciples. But some of them are pretty specific and give us some character and some, uh, some ideas for things that we can know about a true disciple. For instance, they're humble and they emulate Jesus. Matthew 10, 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. They have a desire to understand, Matthew 14, 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They wanted to know. They wanted to know more. They're obedient. Matthew 21, 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Humble, desire to understand, obedient. Does it sound like anybody? Sounds a little like Apollos to me. Sounds like the believers in Ephesus. When confronted by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos didn't resist their clear understanding, but embraced it and sought to share it with others. More importantly than the character that we see in Apollos of humility and desire to understand and obedience, do I see these characters in myself? Do you see them in you? Disciples are self-sacrificing. Luke 14, 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. They have love for one another. John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They bear fruit. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there's a challenge there. As our identity and as our daily experience. 2 Corinthians 31 says, 31.5 says, examine yourselves and see if you are of the faith. And that's a good thing to do to see what your core beliefs are, but also on a daily basis. Did I wake up this morning? Just curious, convinced, or committed? How comfortable am I in continuing to think, say, and do things that I know God would not approve of, or not doing things that he commands? So for those who are indifferent, they need to care enough to become curious. For the curious, they need to study enough to become convinced. For the convinced, they need to focus enough to become committed. As we look at the example of Apollos and the example of the Ephesians, I think we need to find a way to accept our incompleteness as disciples without becoming complacent. And as we continue individually to become disciples and corporately as we continue to become the First Baptist, of, First Baptist Church of Holly, may we embrace our incompleteness so that it does not hinder our growth into what we are not yet. May we be humble, teachable, bold, gracious, all the good things that we see 
in the examples God has given us.